Feel your bodies. A little break from all that heaviness. Are you guys feeling inside your body, things turning a little bit? Oh, yeah. I like that. Anybody else? So it's beyond the words, right? The words are just so we can be entertained. The words can trigger things. But the intention, again, this group of people, healers here, people who've done a lot of work on themselves, people who've suffered, people who answered the call to show up for themselves. Intention is really powerful. We don't really realize that in this culture. And remember what we talked about yesterday. You're picking up less than 3% of electromagnetic phenomena. So basically, you're walking dumbass blind, and things like this don't make sense initially. So from showing up for yourself into something like this, this will weeks and weeks and months and months. If you pay attention, if you journal, if you pay attention to your dreams, things will unfold to show you what the next level is. So I want you to meet my friend, Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> Ramana Maharshi, right, the two homeboys, the Mr. Beatles, you guys know about Ramana Maharshi? Everybody knows a little bit about him. So, beautiful guy, sort of like St. Francis of Assisi. He became enlightened when he was 16 years old, where he had this overwhelming feeling of fear. And he laid down to see what it's like to die, had a spontaneous awakening. And he really was amazing in terms of really like Assisi. In, he honored animals, he enlightened animals plants. He would say, oh, don't pick a fruit from that tree. It's not ripe yet. His sense of oneness was really was all-pervading and very clean. When you go to his ashram that's still there in Trivulanamai, the juice is so strong. This guy died whatever in the 40s. I mean, you, you get transformed. You get transformed. So to me, it's like one of, one of the heavies. Now, didn't know the guy. Who knows? Maybe he was a real bastard and beat everyone up. I doubt it. But when I read that, he, he was one of the guys that really affected me. So reading his stuff really started activating things in me. I had these experiences as a child and in my teenage years, these sort of momentary openings for a couple of weeks. And I didn't really know what's going on. It was really scary. So one of the things that was happening was this fear of death that I read in his stuff was the first place where I read it. I was like, oh my God, that's what was happening to me. When I'd have a little bit of opening as a guy who's always like, oh, I want to wake up, I want to wake up. It was frightening. I went through a period for two weeks where I was so afraid of death, where I didn't sleep for two weeks. Thank God I was like 19, 20, so I could do it. If I do it now, I'd probably die. But the fear of the death thing, I realized, is such a huge thing. Everything that we really do is to push that away. You really can't live as a free being until you look at that, until you face that. You don't have to die. You don't have to, but unless you examine it, now remember that you live in a culture that is so afraid of death that when people die, we put makeup on them, we put them in a dress and a suit. That's how much denial we are. So when I was a kid in India, you'd walk around, you'd see these funeral pyres. Those of you been in India, you're kind of hanging out, they're burning, burning, boom! The skull bursts, you're like, whoa, that's impermanent, right? <laughs> you go to Tibet in the old days before all the birds were dead, hack them up, mix them up with sampak, <laughs> Big birds eat the dead and go away. You're like, impermanent. You come here. Well, even in the Muslim countries, and I know in the Jewish tradition, right? right? As soon as someone dies, you wrap them up in cloth and you stick them under the ground. Impermanent. Here, a week later, you go check out the dude. And he's like, man, that dude looks a lot better with that makeup than he did when he was alive. 
We're really in denial of death here. This whole thing, this absurd thing in the advertising in this culture, right? Like when I was younger, it was like women in their like 20s and 30s. Now it's like 13-year-old kids dressed up to look like adults. Besides all the twisted, demented objectification of men and women, the age thing is very crucial in that. People don't seem to get that. It's, we're so afraid of age. We're so afraid of aging. You cannot live, truly, I can say that to you, unless death is your advisor. So the experience of having my own opening, which actually the fear thing was so intense of dying, the experience of literally watching so many men die during the AIDS crisis. So when I was working as a 23-year-old, the drugs hadn't come up yet. So literally there were people dying every day. There was a time where you just went one funeral to one funeral. I was working as an acupuncturist and a meditation teacher. Acupuncture can help some of the pain, it can help some of the digestive issues, but obviously it's not going to cure AIDS. So what my role became was to be a babysitter, a bodyguard, a doorman. So what I would do is I would sit with these men as they would go through this process. It was so painful in this culture because people are so afraid of death that a lot of times their own families would actually not even show up. So some of them, their lovers had already died, so they were dying alone. So it was so wild getting schooled in that experience of sitting with people as they were dying. One of the things that I remember was this man that I became really good friends with. I adored this man. His name is uh, Mel. And he was an interior designer. He had the most beautiful apartment. So gorgeous. Everything was so perfect. Right, right? The typical image of the gay man with interior designer. This was that guy. Gorgeous guy, six foot tall, so handsome, attractive. So first, this wasting disease. And he just got wasted and wasted. So all that got taken away from him. So the, his first identification of like, I'm this good looking guy. He could pick up a guy anywhere. That was gone. Then his eyesight started going. Then he's really thin in his apartment. He didn't want to die. He was around this beautiful, beautiful apartment he had created. He didn't want to die. So as he's going out, as he's going out, the resistance was amazing. And his mind's trying to hold on to this. His mind's trying to hold on to that. Till the death process. So it was like this 24, 48-hour process. It was actually more like 45-hour process of watching. So I did that a couple of times. I probably did that like 20, 30 times. But this one time was really like consciously going in and watching someone go through that. It really changed my life. It's brutal. But what it makes you realize is that you're impermanent. And that's something that we forget. So one practice that I do myself to keep death as my advisor, to see where I'm full of shit, where I need to pay more attention to, is I actually sit down and practice what we're going to do now for a couple of minutes. If I was going to die right now, what would it be like? Now, most of us, unless you have a direct experience of past lives, which in my worldview, I've had experience of these things as many of you in this room have. Unless you have an experience of that, don't even go there. Because even if you are into that concept, reality of incarnation, it's not you that's going to incarnate. This meat suit's going to die. There'll be a different incarnation. So let's close our eyes. I don't like people to lay down because what happens is they fall asleep. It's more of a mental, emotional exercise, but I want you to feel. I'm going to guide you through a very simple exercise, and let's see how you feel. Mm -hmm. 
close your eyes, be in a comfortable position. You can sit back if you want. So here you are, hearing the sounds outside. Maybe you just had a car accident. Maybe it's old age. Maybe you had a stroke. No one can hear you. I want you to get into the feeling of the fear of letting go by feeling everything and anything that you love and how hard it is to let that go. Might be a person, might be an animal. Might be an object. Your breathing is getting labored. You can't control yourself now. You can't feel your hands. You can't feel your feet. You can't move them. You might even be losing control of your bowel movement or urination. And now think of things that you hate, people that you hate, that you haven't said you hate them. You haven't said, why have you hurt me? As your life force starts slipping out, your mind's gonna start grasping at your parents, your kids. All the pain, all the suffering, all the joys. You're not gonna eat your favorite meal anymore. your favorite hobby. whole body's paralyzed now, it's just your breath.
Feel your regrets right now. See what comes up. What do you regret? You regret not having opened your heart. Is there anything that you've lacked courage to do? Is there anything that you're craving? A place, a food, an experience? Stay in this middle ground. You're not on the other side. The fruit of this experience is to stay right in the middle, not having passed into the absolute, not stuck in the middle world, and not capable of functioning in this world. You're really dying. How absurd are all your worries in this space? How absurd is all your running around without tasting? How absurd is your self-cruelty? That incessant slave driver Now gently bring your awareness to any place in your body you might be holding any particular emotion. Take a mental note what needs to stay in your life and what needs to go. And drop your breath in a little more, bring in the life force.
You're able to move your body. It's not your time to go yet. Dr. Kavorkin is in jail. And his assistant has botched up the job. Use the sounds to bring yourself into the room. And I want you to write down what you want to change, what needs to change. Just someone you need to pull into your life more, someone you need to say you love more. Make sure none of you guys actually die. Bring your asses back into this room. Different experience, right? That guillotine is hanging over your head every day. All the running around that we do, just to push that away. So every once in a while, sit down and do that with yourself. But really do it, not in an intellectual sense, the way the emotions that came up here, the sadness, the grief, it really aligns things. So common for me when I work with dying people, when they've died, and then I work on the couple that's alive, and the rage that the one that's behind has, not just at having someone ripped away from them, which obviously they do, at all the little bullshit things that they nag the person about, that they just torture the person about. They get angry. I have a dear friend whose father lost his wife of 45, 50 years, long time. And he gets enraged when people are fighting. Because for 50 years, that was his reaction with his loved one, control and anger. So death isn't a fun thing, and you live in a culture that really doesn't want to deal with it. But you can only really live truly, truly, truly with that as your advisor. So sometimes in life you got to push yourself, but for a lot of people in this room, they actually need to back up a little bit, back off a little bit. So ask yourself. Someone says, hey, you got to go to this thing this weekend, this crazy guy is doing this thing. 
If I was going to die today, would I want to be on doing this thing? Answer is yes, you do it. Answer is no, you check with yourself. Is it a resistance or is it really because I need some rest? When I was a kid, I learned about death in a really strange way, you know. Like I wasn't told about it. I was watching something on television about... For some reason, I was watching something on television about um, old age homes, you know, unexpectedly, mm -hmm. and I got that really freaked out, scared feeling. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, death was like, you know, was very scared. It was that whole scared thing, you know. And I remember being in a nursing home once, and it's kind of like weird. And now, now in life, I live in an adult community, and unexpectedly, I got involved in hospice. So I've been doing hospice for about past volunteer work in hospice for about the past maybe six years. And I love it. It's like an addiction, you know. I yeah. go there three times a week, and I go to this woman. And it's a very, um, there's no fear. All that fear is gone. It totally is like totally opposite than it's, it's, as a child. It's great practice. Well, there's a couple of things you're saying. I'm not the one dying. I don't have the experience of these people, but it's very No, but young. you do. There's a couple of things you're saying. So the first thing is a childhood thing. We're not around death in this culture. So just the old age home thing, it's so amazing how in this culture it's become a fact where we don't have people dying in our homes. So when I was a kid in the countries we lived in, people died at home. So as kids, you were around it. The whole India thing where you see these funeral pyres, it's, it's around it. So that's the first thing. The second thing, when you are around death, it is, it does get you high. There is a pleasure in it. It's horrible to see people die. I'm not saying that. But when you're around that, there's an energy because people are close to the other side. So there's a remembrance when you're in that energy of like, wow. So there is this magical thing about it besides the fact that it's brutal and it rips your heart open. You're close to that energy. You're close to the absolute. So when people are around that, whether they're resisting it or not, that's why hospice work can in a way be addictive as brutal as it is. People don't really necessarily verbalize it's that. Warm, it's very touching, sensitive, warm experience. It's well, it's, it's, you know, maybe. That hasn't been my experience. To me, it's a brutal experience. But there is a warmness to it, a warmth to it, when you realize the oneness of things, when you're close to that. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. It is pretty brutal. It's brutal. So when, you know, people go like, well, dying, it's very easy to idealize these things. It very sucks. Very... Right. So... The thing that's magical about it is when you're close to that gate in a culture that never goes there, it can be very profound. I definitely recommend it at some point in your life, if it's not a loved one, be around death before you really get old. Just to have that feeling of like, wow, how precious it is to be here. Now, I'm not saying become chocolate Wonka and be all, oh, let's see. It's, it's not that. You know, life is detailed. There are days when you're in pain and honor that. But have this back here to check you. I know for me, when I get really neurotic, I get really scared of this or that, or I get too overwhelmed seeing people suffer from work that I do. I just go like, wow, I could just die on my bike on the way home tonight. How would I react to that? So I try to keep it a little bit as possible as clean. And you know what? Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's too overwhelming. I'm just really ready to strangle someone. It's not going to work. But 99% of the time, it's actually like, wow, you're just being uptight. It's not that important, brother. Let it go. Let it go. So the stuff that you wrote, really take actions on it. Take actions on it. So if it's about letting somebody go in your life, they need to let go. A situation you need to let go. Do it. You remember what we talked about here? We've got a lot of caretakers here. When you're caretaking and you feel like there's no other option but to caretake, 
Not only are you damaging yourself, you're damaging the person that you're caretaking. When you step out of that, the right situation comes in. Like out of all this new age stuff that I want to throw a hand grenade at, that's the one that's actually true. It really works when you step back. So for those of you, the pain that comes up, see how much of it is that. Questions, comments, grenades? Could you drop into it? You did. Could you drop into it without just being mental? Could you feel it a little bit? When you practice it more and more, it actually becomes a very kinesthetic thing. I felt more, uh, I think, just by your talking about the people whose beds I do, and mm. that to mm. all the friends I lost. Mm. So it was harder for me to be as personal. Mm. Mm. I saw some, but it was mm. much more material. Mm. Well, me and you have had a similar background because, you know, the same thing. It's such a blessing, as brutal as it is for all the loved ones that we've lost. It's such a blessing because you have a bodily felt memory of that, but we forget. So then we get all wrapped up around, fuck man, this painter came in and just didn't paint my wall right. I needed two more shades of gray. And I'm going to kill myself. As opposed to like, wow. Really? Yeah. Better attitude. Better attitude. Attitude adjustment. It's good. It's good to feel these things. So, Carl Young, the other homeboy. We've got these three homeboys now, right? The homeboys keep adding. I'm going to get some home slices in there, but they're, they're there, I'm sure. I'm just an ignorant third worlder, so I'm in the homeboy thing. But I'm going to figure out some home slices we can get in there. He used to say, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. So part of this whole practice that we're doing is to look inside so we can wake up. We talked about meditation yesterday. The meditation of feeling your body, using the equipment that I used to use with biofeedback, I found that the easiest way of dropping in. So for those of you who weren't here yesterday, um, you basically lost it because now you're not going to know the secret <laughs> of life. Two types of meditation. One's distraction. You repeat a mantra. Think about something, tonglen, praying, that goes out. Very powerful. It can be very powerful when you're having a specific anxiety time where your mind's very restless. The other one's attention, vipassana, therapeutic awareness, which is sort of the technical term of what I learned. So feeling the body is one of the ways of looking inside. The difference that I found between these two techniques and TM being a distraction one, they can be very useful when you're in a quiet room like this. The reason I practice the other one all the time is because you can do it all day long. So when you're in a business meeting with some crazy guys and it's hard and dealing and you've been up 12 hours, you can't in the middle of the boardroom be like, I mean, you can, you lose your job. What you can do is like, feel your hands, notice your breath is tight, feel your feet, drop into your body. So it's a kinesthetic awareness of actually being embodied. Right? We keep talking about being embodied, being embodied. Oh, what the hell does being embodied mean? Kinesthetically feel your body. So the image is you have an Alka-Seltzer tablet. You guys know what Alka-Seltzer is. Some of these, you are probably too young to know what Alka-Seltzer is. <laughs> um, so you take that pill, 
you drop it on top of your head, it melts. As it melts, the awareness comes all the way onto your hands and feet. As soon as a thought comes, this pill reforms on the top of your head, you got to melt it again. You got to do this a thousand times a day. One of the things that when I started practicing years ago when I learned this technique is I wouldn't remember. So I would put a little uh, pebble in my shoe and it would be a pain in the ass walking in the clinic. I was like, oh yeah, every time I felt a pebble, I would feel my body. Your body has this amazing capacity to habituate. So your body remembers it. So then I take that out of that shoe, I'd put it in the other shoe. Then I'd put a watch on one wrist opposite what I was wearing. Then I'd flip my watch upside down. Then I'd put little pieces of paper. There were no computer those days. So it'd be on my desk. Um, it's 1932. I'd put a little piece of paper on top of my desk. Every time I would see it, people were like, what the hell is that? So if I could draw it for you. So the drawing of it is, this is what it looks like. Really simple. We've got this stick figure. Somebody got a pen that works? Yeah. Much better. This is you all the time. The energy is all stuck in your head. This is what you want to do. Kinesthetically, the awareness is everywhere. That's literal. Republican, independent. So basically what happens is, what happens is, remember what we talked about yesterday, it's really important. Your immune system functions at the optimum when you're in this state. Your body cannot distinguish between thought and reality. I want to really hammer this in if this is one thing you take with yourself. Right? Every thought has a cascade of biological events that affect your body adversely. You take vitamins, just what you did right now, that's fantastic because you're letting in air by letting out the anxiety. Now you can breathe in. This thing, the energy stuck in the head. That's literal. Congest the energy. This thing that we're talking about, about the changes that we're going through, this is the place where you're going to get the changes, not here. This is same old, same old. This is that little mind doing its own thing. This is like, oh, oh. if you look at all situations in your life, when something happened, you met someone, they betrayed you, or they turned out to be your best friend, or you knew if you were here. But when you go back, you're like, oh my God, I, why don't I listen? That's the gut feeling thing. So you listen to the gut feeling when you're in this state. I work with these really successful, treat some really successful business people. It's amazing when they're very successful, they're actually doing this. They think they're doing this. They think, I'm so smart, I'm thinking. They know in their guts. Like a very successful businessman, a very successful healer. We're all doing it. We just don't really think it's that. We think it's the head thing. So here's you selling your business right before the real estate market crashes. You can be like, yeah, I, that was just good luck. It was just whatever. No, we know. It's amazing. It's just that you listened. Most people didn't listen. So if you get in touch with this, it's amazing. Because remember, you're navigating your life pretty blind. Do something for a couple of days and see how this works for you. Put a rubber band around your wrist. Tell your friend, your office colleague, hey, listen, when we have dinner, let's check each other out. It's a very interesting thing. I'm sure you've all had this experience. You go to restaurants or you eat some delicious food, 
and the food's gone, you don't even realize you ate it? That's that one. So a really good practice, something, if we kind of sit together with lunch today, I'd love to do like for 10 bites. Actually, let's have 10 bites consciously. It's unbelievable how difficult it is. So can you walk around with robes and a shaved head and a begging bowl and do that all day? No, I'm not saying do that all day. Do it for a couple of minutes a day. It'll show you where the next level is. Good? Okay. Questions? You guys are just too burnt out from that death experience to even ask anything. You're like half dead. <laughs> so, let's go back into a little bit of theory here now. What holds us back from waking up? We're all like, I want to wake up, I want to wake up, I've done 10 rituals. What holds us back? That's of the ego. So let's go a little bit deeper into that. That's not the big one. That is the one. Beautiful what you say. Let's go deeper into that. Death of the ego. It's the idealized self-image and the shadows and the protection of these things that make it hard for us. That's why we do this work. So one part of it is like, I don't give a shit about spirituality. Okay, so if you want to live your life more fully, do this work so you can be a free person. So you're not run by these unconscious energies. You're being nice all the time. Why are you being nice? You have to understand it. Or I want to wake up. Okay, you want to wake up. The you and the wake up don't live together. It's like you jump in a swimming pool to be dry. The two cannot coexist. You can be in a pool, you're wet. You're outside, you're dry. You're not going to be in a swimming pool and be dry. It's the same experience. So the importance of the shadow work is those are the aspects of the psyche that hold us back from going to that other side. In my own experience, I've been like having these experiences and be like, I want to wake up, I want to wake up, I want to wake up. One of the gifts for me of doing these shamanic work was how out of alignment my actual experience and what I was thinking was. I was like, I want to wake up, I want to wake up. When I would do these experiences, the death was so profound, the fear of it. I was like, ah, ah, and my mind would hold on to every little thing. A motorcycle, a girlfriend, my mother, somebody I hated. The mind was like a computer, it didn't want to shut down. As one system would shut down, another one would get lit up. As one would shut down, another one would get lit up. So, in order to wake up, you have to actually examine these things. And you really have to die while you're alive. And you can't really live fully unless you're dead. So, this is the irony of the whole thing. Now, remember what we talked about yesterday two types of people who are awake. You have your typical archetype, the master. The master is actually aware that she is awake. And you have your gardener, totally awake. You walk by and you're like, whoa, that's really cool. But they're not aware. We're after the first one. That's the fish we want to fry. That's a cool experience. Because then you can really live as a free being. One of the things that this unconscious stuff does is stops us from really experiencing life. So one of the things for me, my experiences with the shamanic stuff, all the stuff that I hadn't done was really bumming me out. There's a great story um, about this Indian teacher named Karoli Baba. Wakes up in the middle of the night, make some chapati. They're like, the guy lives on like a thimble full of milk and they make chapati. Okay, well, the guru says make chapati. Make some curry. Curry, like, okay, what the fuck? Okay, make curry and chapati. And he starts shoving this food in his face, two or three in the morning. People are like, oh my God, the guru's lost it. 
So the next day or day after, someone gets the courage, it's like, oh, Guruji, Guruji, um, what the fuck were you doing? It's like, oh, Muhammad from the next village, he died last night at 2 o'clock. The last thought on his mind was, he wished he had some curry and chapati. I brought him into my body and fed him curry and chapati, so he's not going to reincarnate over that desire. This guy was a pretty cool cat. He's not one of the full of shit ones. So for him to say that, whatever you do with that story, don't leave any stones unturned. Part of this idealized self-image is it really forces us to be the good girl, to be the good boy, to be the bad girl, to be the bad boy. You cannot fully experience the whole thing. Experience things. So when it's time to leave, you leave as a free being because those little things will pull you back. One of the things with the shamanic stuff that I was doing, it brought up all these things. I was like, oh my God, I really want to go cross country. I can't believe I've never gone cross country. That was my dream as a kid. The second I came out of that thing, I was got on a bike and I went cross country. Because I realized, like, I was like, oh, it's no big deal. Everyone's gone cross country. What's the... That's the thinking. The little boy was like, oh my God, do you remember? We didn't remember that motorcycle in Zen of... Uh... Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was like, oh my God, oh my God. I totally did idealized self-image. I'm a responsible healer now. People need me. People are dying. Who the fuck are you to get on a bike and go take two months and travel across the country? Be here. Idealized self-image. The little boy is like, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. It changed my life. Because one of the things we don't have in this culture is we don't really have rites of passage. Rites of passage is a credit card now and a computer and a cell phone. So for me, as a young boy man, was an amazing rite of passage of like, okay, I'm going to get on this bike by myself Go cross country in a place that might scare me, might be this, might be that. It, I came back more of a man than the boy man that left. We don't do that in this culture. So if you haven't done that and you're at the age that you are now, find a way to have a rite of passage. Give something to yourself. It doesn't have to be going cross country, although it's pretty awesome. Do something. Take a trip. Give yourself a week off from work. Give yourself a present. Take a present away. Go on a meditation retreat. Give yourself something on that level. So the point of all this work that we're doing, again, remember, isn't to suffer and to be like, oh, pain and dying. You do those things so you can live more fully, have more fun, be more light. In my experience, spiritual people are some of the least fun people that I know. I mean, I was never a bigger asshole in my life than my most spiritual time. I remember going to this... Um, Thanksgiving dinner. And this is when I was really into the fasting thing. When we talk about this fasting thing, this puking thing is so awesome in our culture. We're all like anorexic. Um, the food thing is a really big thing. And I was really into fasting. And I was like, now I look like Hercules compared to the guy then. I was like this. And I'm like fasting. And I remember coming to this Thanksgiving and these friends of mine, these really lovely South Africans, had done this beautiful spread and it was really great. And fuck if I ate anything. I was like, no, I'm just having tea now. And this spiritual pride... And these people looking at me going like, poor guy, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> but the spiritual pride of sitting there and like, man, the food was damn good. It's like delicious things and pies. And I was like not eating. I had such spiritual pride. I think back at it, I actually just like laugh at myself. But for years, I'd get so embarrassed. <laughs> what an uncompassionate asshole. You go to these people's house that love you. They've killed themselves to put this beautiful meal out. Eight, nine, ten people. I'm not around my family. They're like, you're family. And I go fucking pull this kind of shit. But you know what? I see that kind of shit every day. 
right? We, we are so arrogant in our spirituality. So while we're talking about that, let's talk about, it's one of the chapters in the book, <clears throat> those of you who haven't read it, <laughs> called Spirituality Masquerading as Addiction. Yeah. Right? We live in a culture of addiction. So what are some of the things that masquerade as spirituality where in fact they're addiction? Diet is one of them. This whole fad now with like eating this, eating that. Okay, you're living in a limited planet. Does it make sense not to eat meat or at least meat every day? Of course. Do the studies show that eating tons of meat leads to cancers? Of course. Are you more enlightened if you eat vegetables than someone who eats meat? No, you're just a fucking asshole if you believe that. <laughs> I had this argument with this woman who came to who was a very big proponent of vegetarianism. That's her shtick. We all have our shticks. Remember I said to you yesterday, leave your shtick at the door. Um, it's beautiful. It's great. Be a vegetarian, teach vegetarianism. But she was this ardent, militaristic, how dare you do something. I'm like, you're a control freak. And I brought up the fact, she's like, you know, if you're a vegetarian, you have peace in your heart. I was like, um, there are these people called Nazis, and some of the top SS officers were actually vegetarians. And all they ate was sugar and they were vegetarians. Hitler was into that. She just, that is myth. That is, how can you say that? It's like, no. Inside and outside aren't matched on that level. We can hide under anything. So the food thing is a huge thing. Of course you feel better if you eat clean. But is that wellness or is that spirituality? It makes no difference. You drink 10 cup, cups of coffee a day, it's going to be really hard to meditate. I'm not saying that these things aren't important. But observe how it's done. Now, I'm a practitioner of Chinese medicine. I work in New York City. I'm not the brightest guy, but I've watched people for 25 years. I know that when you live in a cold climate and you eat raw foods and you're not 15 anymore, you freeze, it whacks out your digestion, your digestion can't really absorb it. So this huge thing right now with raw foods, of course you feel wild eating raw foods because your frequency goes really up but you also get really ditzy. So it's a way of getting high without really grounding yourself. And foods are very similar to medication. One thing I've learned being a therapist is like um, antidepressants. Antidepressants, you're for them, you're against them. Long term, there's all kinds of studies that haven't been done. It can be helpful. The people who should take antidepressants for three or six months, it might be very helpful if they have a hard time in their lives, will never take it. The ones who should be doing a therapeutic work, instead of taking antidepressants, give me three, man. Those two good, Just give me another one. It's interesting. It's like, it's like we always go towards the thing that isn't good for us. Not always. You can't. Thank you for correcting me there. It's, it's not always, but it is that. The food thing is very similar. So I have people who have these really serious health issues. They're actually damaging themselves because they're doing their diet through their brain, not their body. So you have a direct experience. You drink milk, it gives you mucus. You don't drink milk. That's an experience in your body. That's not theoretical. You understand. A leads to B. I'm not going to do A because it doesn't feel good. For somebody else, it's all A. It's all in the head. There's no B. So my teacher says it's great to eat raw foods. Raw foods, fantastic. Do them for a couple of weeks in the warm weather. You have a really strong constitution. Do them longer. People's digestions don't work. That's one thing I can tell you. In Chinese medicine, old school, you have five elements. The old school, earth was the middle. You always worked on a digestion first. A lot of things sorted out. It's really the same thing right now. 
So we're doing these addictive things under the guise, well, I'm being spiritual. That's me walking into that Thanksgiving, being a total jerk. I'm spiritual. That's one of them. One of these other ones, that's one of my favorite ones, is the 2012 thing, right? 2012, woo, end of the world, party. When you examine that, there's a couple of things. One is we want to get high. So this is nothing new. Prophecies is great. It's doom and gloom. It'll be the end of the world. That's great. When you go a little bit deeper, what's interesting is the ego doesn't want to change. The ego, the only time it's going to succumb to some change is when there is absolute travesty, damage, fire, hell, brimstone. So it's the ego getting high again. I'm not going to change. Throw a grenade in here, then we'll see what happens. <laughs> so when you really examine this 2012 stuff, is that. Is there something happening right now? Absolutely. I mean, you know, ask any healer in this room. People are waking up fast. There's all kinds of stuff coming up. Is that 2012? Who knows? The most honest thing you can say is something's happening. Can you say really it's 2012? Who knows? If these guys were so bright, how come their culture died? I mean, like, people don't question these guys. I mean, these cats were playing football with each other's heads. Like, hello, maybe something is up. Oh, no, but they said 2012. Yeah, they were great at astrology. I mean, we're great. We, we sent rockets up to the moon. We're, like, killing each other. What, what, like, hello? The disconnect? Am I the only one who sees that disconnect? So these things, these myths are perpetuated because we don't want to do the work. So the work will be done. If there's the end of the world, woo, the ego wants to go. My senses that what's happening is we were on this trajectory where really that could have happened and it's already happening with like earth changes and stuff but somehow our souls have said we're going to take the harder road that's harder that's that's happened on this planet people have been wiped out you get reincarnated start again the much harder thing is this trial by baptism by fire by getting cleansed by the work that we're doing today this is much more difficult we're sitting here together, all these adults, looking at stuff that's not pleasant. This is harder. The explosion, the boom, that's much more easy. That's much more. So I don't know how aware of this 2012 thing you guys are. In New York, it's a big thing. And it's totally tied into this ayahuasca thing. So, nice lead in the ayahuasca thing. We talked about it yesterday. So what is this drug that weakens your ego, gives you the experience? It's wonderful. It's powerful. I really think if you have a strong shell if your body can take it everybody should have an experience of hallucinogens once in their lives i do believe that because it gives you a direct experience of what it's about you realize you're not your body you will forget it your body will reform but somewhere will open it up i treat people that do this damn thing two three times a weekend do you understand how much when you have a hallucinogen experience even when you smoke pot which is not actually a relaxant it's actually an upper the reason you have these amazing insights is because your body's energies are burning faster. So, not for it, not against it. You're an adult, you make the choice. Understand, if this pen is a dollar or two dollars, I might buy it. If this pen's 50 bucks, I'll think twice about it. If this pen is a thousand bucks, I'll really think a lot about it. When you're having these experiences with these psychedelics, you're not paying five bucks. You're doing it on a Friday night after you worked all day and all week, you're paying 500 bucks. You're doing it because actually you're not content inside and you're seeking something, you're paying $12,000. You're doing it because you just broke up with your ex, you want to strangle that asshole guy, you're paying $20,000. Understand, you have limited life force, use it accordingly. 
No right, no wrong. We said that yesterday. Just conscious. Be conscious of your actions. So the ayahuasca thing is another thing. We have these experiences of openness. A lot of people even do it. Their egos are so strong it doesn't even open them. Do something else. But be aware. So this is, I'm doing spiritual work. And then we talked about this thing yesterday. This is another thing with these sort of opening up in these group settings. We all know each other now, right? We've, we've, we've spent a couple hours together. You kind of trust each other. We still don't know what's underneath here. If we all did ayahuasca together, at least we've processed together for like four or five hours now. There's a little bit of familiarity. We've dumped some emotions out through some of these exercises. There'll be a lot of, le- lot of less shit falling out of us if we do it. You're walking into a room, 15, 20, 30 people you don't know. Everyone's opening up. Where do you think that energy's going? I'll give you a clue. Inside of you. All kinds of attachments and stuff. Again, not for, not against. That was my path. But when I did it, I did it for years with two or three people that I knew. that we worked deeply with each other. With one shaman who sat with us for eight hours. So be aware of these things. Again, I think it's great. You want to experience life? Say, I want to go get high. I'm going to have an experience. I'm going to, getting high sounds like a judgment. I want to have an experience. You got no, I got no beef with you. I want to go play. I got no beef with you. I'm doing spiritual work. Remember what we talked about yesterday. Phenomenal, absolute. If your attempt at doing phenomenal work is to get to the absolute and you're doing spiritual work, okay, you're clear. If you just want to do phenomenal work because it's fun, that's awesome. But if you're doing phenomenal work that's just going to keep you stuck in phenomenal work, thinking it's going to take you to absolute, just be clear that that's what you're doing. I had a teacher years ago, Zen teacher, years ago, very briefly. And what she said to me was, this is your hara, this is your breath. This is the time when I was having these openings, all these questions. And, Sit with your breath. You do this for the next 40 years, you'll find out who you are. Too simple. I'm like, she's awesome. Yeah, bullshit, man. I've got to run around. 30 years later, I can tell you, this is your hara. This is your breath. Sit five minutes a day and do that. That's all you need. All these things that we do are just defense mechanisms for that character armor. So think of that character armor as this old samurai suit. It's really beautiful, shells, nothing can perforate it. You take a shower with that, Ain't going to get clean. You take a swim with that, you'll drown. Try to have sex with that, it'll be a pretty lonely experience. That's this work to kind of open that up a little bit. Now we're talking about this spirituality and how addiction can masquerade it. One of the big things is like psychics. I train with psychics. I, would, I love psychics. I don't love It's not that I love or don't love them. They can be very helpful, but understand couple of things about psychics. First of all, you're going there because you're not clear. Second of all, the best psychic on the best day, back in the day even, was 80-90% accurate, the best ones. The energy is so intense right now that you can have a reading yesterday, you can come in here and have this group meeting, your trajectory can be 180 degrees different. So I think they can be very helpful, and some psychics are true, profound healers. They can do, it's not good or against. It's helped me in my past. But I've also used it in ways that was really damaging to me. What was one of the ways that people use psychics that I did? I was in a situation. Of course, a woman involved. Always relationships, of course. How funny is that? I knew this relationship isn't good for me. 
So I went to the psychic because I wanted the psychic to tell me the relationship was good for me. Psychic told me, relationship is good for you. Awesome. Here's your 150 bucks. Three months later, I'm like, so painful because I knew my ego wanted to do the drug, didn't want to listen. I went to someone who gave me the information that I wanted to hear. Now, I understand the logic on the big picture. My soul taught me a lesson. It was perfect. But I could really have done without that heartbreak and embarrassment. It was totally off. It was totally off. So if you're going to someone as an intuitive psychic with an openness, like, show me where my path, where am I stuck in my path? Awesome. Right? The, the, the intuitive, the psychic is a helicopter. You're on FDR stuck. The helicopter says, hey, you know, get off exit 13 because there's going to be a blockage. And you get off exit 13 and come back, and then you put on 10, 10 wins. Oh, my God, there was an accident. People were stuck there for three hours. That's awesome. The other decisions, sit with yourself a little bit. Knowing about something, not knowing about something. Yes, no, sitting in the middle, not knowing. That's really hard for the ego. My sense is these times that we're coming into, we have to sit with that not knowing. So the answer would be like, you know, i got to do this workshop next weekend. i got to sign up for it. Uh, part of me really wants to do it. Part of me doesn't want to do it. <laughs> sit with that. If you get like, yes, I really, this, i got to do this. You're here. First thing, no, I don't want to do it. You're not here. I don't really know. You sit with it last second. You're like, call up. Hey, is it opening? One seat? Okay, i got one seat. I'm going to come in. That's a really great practice. Because we're all egomaniacs and ego freaks, we can never sit in the not knowing. Kicks in back to the intellectuals. Intellectuals read and gather information because they have to defend that position because they can't be loosey-goosey. You ever see a good Tai Chi fighter? You ever see a good Tai Chi person? How they never take a foreign position? They'll eat anyone alive as a fighter. So you have a good karate person, very high-level art, throws a punch. That's rigidity. Tai Chi person just lets it go, puts the energy back. You want to learn to be more like that. For most of us, we're like this. We can have this external, very calm demeanor, nice. Inside, this is most of our reactions. So the not knowing, leaving space for that, gives you a little bit of openness. Questions? Shoot. Um, Statement. Bring it on. Even better. Okay. Um, I'm an intellectual snob, basically. Um, you bitch. I really have no patience for people who have made a decision to stay stupid. Um, <laughs> I, and I understand that that's because I really lack uh, or I have a glitch about compassion, what real mm. compassion is. Mm. I mean, it's been a, um, a life's journey for me. I just, it does not come naturally. I'm sure it's in there because I've experienced it, but it's got a boulder or two in front of it. Um, and I, I've been a student of uh, metaphysics and, and um, awakening uh, for, for a very long time. And I've had people say to me, your, your intellectualism is going to get in the way, the fact that, you're, you know, that I rely on intelligence. Oh, I'm finding that to be more and more true in the art of the not knowing and sitting mm. in that not knowing. Mm. It's excruciatingly mm. difficult. Mm. Um, but I am a psychic mm -hmm. and I get paid for knowing. Mm -hmm. So there's a, uh, an internal conflict going back to what you said about how it being purposive, it's a distraction. Mm -hmm. 
they're really not at war with each other. I contemplate on the war mm -hmm. with each other. Mm -hmm. And I sincerely do not know how to move from that place. Mm. It's, I'm seeking one thing while clinging to something else. I'll give you this much, but I've never gone the distance. Mm. I, it's like that thing that Ram Das said, that he mm -hmm. would sit with the people who were dying, mm -hmm. but he realized the thing that he never did was die with them. Mm -hmm. I, I just mm -hmm. don't go the distance mm -hmm. in anything. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, it's, it's just, just is that thing. <laughs> it's really beautiful what you're saying. So thank you for sharing that, because that's all of us. So... When he came in, I said, hey, that's what I was saying about leave the shtick at the door. Because uh -huh. a psychic thing, not that it's a shtick, but it's a shtick. My, my shtick is a healer, right? So that's the first thing. It's not that you don't have compassion for people. For you, from when you were little, you weren't allowed not to know. So those words, even though they come out at hard, stupidity, this and that, you are in a place of such terror of not knowing. Correct. So you project it out as, you fucking idiot, how can you not know? Because you weren't allowed to. Now, people like me and you who are intuits, who work psychically, why did we become that? Yes, we have certain gifts, but we actually went to the place because we had to know everything, because we were so terrified of not knowing that we had to be in control. Absolutely. Then we took that wounding and we put it in the service of healing people. That's a beautiful thing. The problem becomes, this is that samurai sword, this is that armor. The problem becomes when you don't know how to take that armor off. Mm -hmm. So the vulnerability. the vulnerability goes back to the vulnerability. So when you say to me, when anyone says to me, like, I, I think people are really stupid. I actually, you're a very compassionate person. When I sit with you, you have a big heart. You, it's not that. The place where you lack compassion is towards yourself. Now, that's a very new age. You think you lack compassion? No, we hate ourselves. Yes, self-loathing. Self and it scares the living shit out of us not to know. Now... When you get kudos for what you do, because you change people's lives, mm -hmm. that gets even harder to take that armor off. Yeah. So when you're like, you can come here and be like, oh, I can tell you this is the energy that's going to happen for you. Psychically, I can see this for you. For you, you can read someone's past life, change their lives. It's very powerful. A big confusion for healers is the woman or the man in the treatment room is not the woman or a man outside the treatment room. That's why you really can't be friends, for example, with your patients and clients because it gets very confusing that took me a long time to understand i can be a pretty enlightened man when i'm in a room whether someone's dying or not because there's no me in the room there's no you in the room when your work is really good we're not in the room but then i come outside thinking i'm still that guy <sighs> big difference because i'm not that guy and then out of that space i can hit on a woman it'll be destructive it'll be horrible because now I'm not being honest. Like, I'm not being a man. Hey, I'm a man, you're a woman. I'm not going there. I'm going like, oh, I'm this healer, enlightened being doing this. This is where all this PMS stuff happens. Now, when you say to me, it's easy for me to feel my anger, but it's hard for me to feel that other part. It's not that. That other part's up all the time. I would say, we're going to do a little exercise later today in terms of helplessness, which you'll hate. Um, <laughs> um, I would say, hopefully, that guy there, because he can take a beating. Um, he's a very strong martial artist. Um, you want to practice once in a while being in the unknown. So when you do your work, 
Like one thing I do, I do a whole ritual when I start my work. I, I do prayers, I do mantras, friends have taught me, I clear the space. When I leave, I actually do all that. I remove all my clothes and put them away, put on a different clothes, and mentally I go like, that guy is not here now. Abdi's here. I actually, and for me it has to be a physical thing. I wear the same clothes at work for 25 years. I mean, I wash them, but I wear the same thing because I don't want that part to affect people. So it's always a t-shirt and a jean. So people's minds can be distracted with it. But also my mind can be distracted. So that uniform for 25 years of the same thing allows me to understand that's a different guy. So when I come out, I put my civilian clothes on. I do the blessings. I bless the energies of the day. I go through all the names of people I treated. I pray for them all, release them. I'm done then. <laughs> then the psychic doesn't come out that door. Then there's more room for this guy. And I'm like, wow, I'm really tired today. Wow, that person really pissed me off. That person was really aggressive. I did too much today. I didn't do enough. I wish I'd called that person. I wish I'd stepped a little bit more for this guy. I wish I'd gone to the hospital for this person. I'd become vulnerable. So the danger for people like us who are healers, who have these gifts, is we use those gifts and they become bondages. They become that samurai suit. It's not easy. You will have, I will have a psychotic break, as I've had before, if you just open that suit up. The identification is too much. Remember what I said to you yesterday. If I've worn this short, sh uh, shirt for 48 years every day, same shirt, I really think this is my skin. So you touch it, I'm like, hey. But once it comes off, my identity is this shirt, but once it comes off, you're like, wow, it's actually amazing underneath here. It's so different. I grew up on the streets, so the, my first experience was, it was instinctive, that gut that you talked about, that's my, my savior, it helped me survive. It's your savior. The thing is that you actually are sitting with your energetically, you're an incredibly soft, sweet girl in there that just couldn't. Oh, stop. That couldn't, I know. Um, and uh, here's my number, so after this we can actually talk. Um, there's actually a very sweet, soft girl that had to get murdered to survive. And the anger, the rage, is the defense mechanism. The thing is that time is gone. I used to work in the Lower East Side back in the day. I used to treat people who were Auschwitz survivors. Numbers on the wrists. You can say whatever you want to say. Someone who's lost like everything, watched their families die, got a fucking number tattooed on them. That experience is going to be with you, man. I don't give a fuck. You've been in this city for 50 years. That's what happened to you. Yeah, because I was in an orphanage and you become yes. a number. Yes. So, but I have a lot of shame yes. about what I do and who I am. Yes. Did you have that experience? Of course, because we think we're fakes. You tell me a healer who doesn't think that. The most dangerous healer is an arrogant healer. If you don't feel like you're a fake as a healer till you heal that, the only people that I trust are people who have that. Because the people that who fucked me up the most as healers, as therapists, were the ones who were just so arrogant who didn't have that. With time, when I get myself out of the room, then there's no more shame. Because then it's clean. The shame is when you're still bringing that wounded self into the room and trying to be somebody. Very dangerous. All the damage I've done as a healer because I started very young, probably similar to in my 20s. I did a lot of damage. I'm ashamed of it. I'll take it to my grave. But I've had to forgive myself because I didn't know better. I wasn't consciously trying to help people. So inappropriate relationship, this, that. I was a 20-some-year-old when I got thrown into this thing.
But now the shame isn't there because I do the best I can because the guy in the room isn't the guy outside. That's what I'm telling you. And you can only take people as a friend, as a mother, as a father to the places you've been yourself. You cannot take people any further. So you can be the most amazing teacher of whatever. You can only take people to the depths you've been yourself. Otherwise, you're jerking off. I like how this is getting lighter and lighter as we go along. I love these summers. <laughs> really, thank you for saying that, because what you're saying is all of us. The bottom line of everybody in this room is shame. The bottom line is we're all so ashamed, and we hide it. We hide it by being nice. We hide it by being mean. We hide it by being strong. We hide it by being smart. Service. Let's talk about the service thing for a second. My father came from a brutal upbringing. But I'm talking third world brutal, not like American brutal. Working four years of age, sweeping floors, like heartbreaking. Brother dying because they couldn't get medical care because he got burnt by water, like horrible shit. My father spent 45, 48 years of his life in service. He worked for UNICEF. So the way he dealt with his original wounding was going around the world and helping kids that couldn't have, that didn't have. Sounds beautiful, right? And it is beautiful on one level. The unfortunate part about that is, one thing I came across all these do-gooders and NGOs and this and that is, these people weren't aware that their enlightenment is intertwined with the people that they're healing. They went behind what we're talking about is, by service, I'm helping them. These people, I'm helping them. There is such a racist, unconscious, prejudice, unconscious energy to that. Well, who the fuck are you as an outsider coming here and saying that? Who do you think you are? So the service thing is very tricky business, and it's very easy to hide under. If you're doing service because you know that's what you need to do to wake up because it softens you, great. But that's not my experience. A lot of people in service are there hiding underneath it. Even if you're like into service because it gives you money, I love that. Great, that's honest. But if you're in service with confusion with that stuff, that's why so many healers are so fucked up with money. We, we don't really understand that in this culture. There's so much misnomers about it. We have this archetype where the healer doesn't need anything. You know, I got a wife and a dog. I come home without money. They're going to kick my ass. I got to feed them. I got to feed my dog. My wife, sometimes yes, sometimes no, depending how her business is. My dog definitely will eat me alive. They're, they're, these Ridgebacks don't fuck around. So... If I'm in this archetype, and I've had, you know, it's taken me a long time to sort this out. I have great friends who help me with this stuff. My whole thing was like, well, I can't really earn. Oh, God, I, I, just feel so, I still feel bad. Like, if I was a businessman, I used to sell drugs. This is uh, over 25 years ago, so I can't go to jail for it now. So this is just so you know. <laughs> Never large quantity, just in the millions of dollars. When I, when, I, when, I, when I used to, when I was like selling pot or coke or whatever, when I was like 18 or whatever, I had no problem being a businessman. I can be a killer businessman. I was like, fuck it, man. You want that? You pay me this? Boom, boom. It's good. When I came to healing, all of a sudden, I was like, I just can't charge people. Right? I mean, there is something real about that, right? It's hard. If people need you and they can't afford you, like, you got to work with that. You can't just be like it's a business. And some people are like, no, you have to make it a business. Well, there's a reality somewhere in the middle there. These archetypes are very difficult. You want to help people. You want to have your motorcycle. You want to have your motorcycle tricked out. You want your dog. You want to help people. So you got to work on these things. These archetypes aren't fed. So what do people do? Either they're like hardcore businessmen, which in a way is the most honest, or they do dishonest things. Well, okay, I won't charge this, I won't charge this, but then you'll be angry, you'll be aggravated, you'll give this one more than this one. Being clean with this stuff is really difficult, especially in a culture where these archetypes, where healers are not supposed to have needs. 
The only time you're not going to have a need is when you're uh, sprouting daisies under the ground. What else? Bring it on. That's beautiful. I, I love when you people share. Um, and I love when those things go off. Um, <laughs> we've got 40 minutes. Maybe not take a break. Maybe go a little bit more and then we'll take lunch. What do you think? Or do you need a break? Okay, take a bathroom. Let's take a couple of minutes to take a bathroom. So, that Qigong practice, good to do either early in the morning, late in the evening. If it's late in the evening, remember, you want to sit back a little bit. That'll help the energy drop. If it's early in the morning, you can actually push your energy a little bit forward by bending your stance a little bit forward. Your knees are a little bit bent. When the joints are locked, the energy doesn't flow. So to go through it, tongue on the roof of the mouth, the hands by the side, shoulders are relaxed, elbows are relaxed. A little bit of a squat. doesn't have to be a very wide stance, although you can do that. And the intention is to go down. So these pictures that I drew for you, it's that, you know, the one that's thinking. But more than that, energetically, most of us are like a triangle, upside down. The head is the tip of a triangle, and then the rest of it goes up. The function of all these martial arts is to actually make you the triangle base at your belly, at your feet, and the tip up. So if you work with someone who's a good martial artist, you can't move them, not because mechanically they're strong, although there's some of that, it's because the energy is lower. So a very interesting exercise in Chinese soft internal arts, which are not based on strength, you can have two people standing in front of each other, and you can see who can corkscrew deeper into the earth. So that exercise that we did from this point, bubbling well in your feet where you go down. And it's amazing. You actually, without even touching the person, you know they're deeper than you or more shallow. And the person who's deeper will touch the one that's more shallow and the person will fall over. So this energy stuff is really interesting. We expand out about a meter or so depending on where our energy field is. So it's a great way to rejuvenate. Most of our practices, the energy goes out. Unless you're doing pranayama or things like that, most of them, the energy is expanded. The Qigong is about actually holding the energy in. Indians have it, Tibetans have it, there's different practices. But that's a very simple one. The beauty of it is you can't harm yourself. A lot of these Qigongs, if you are a psycho practitioner like most of us are in here, and we do it for half an hour a day, you can actually throw your energy off. The beauty of this is you allow the body to do its own thing. A lot of these martial practices where your energy, your intent, is forcing the energy to go somewhere can actually be very dangerous. Because your, your body always knows best. So I've done Qigongs back in the day where I would practice for hours and hours. And I, I started having chest pains. As a 20-year-old, I thought I was having a heart attack. So you can really throw yourself off with that. Any questions about what we've discovered, discussed, delved into? I don't know any other D words. Um, these last couple of hours. You looked like you were going to say something. <laughs> But now you will. So I'm mm. kind of mm. putting that back together. But it's, it's, that's actually great. Right. It's seen that it's, 
different, but it actually is. And really the deep work comes in the community. Yeah. It really is. I mean, to me, I really do believe it's so much more courageous, so much more courageous. I have friends who are monks. It's not to diss them, but I feel it's so much courageous to live consciously in the world than to pull back on that level, although that's some people's karma, mm -hmm. and although it can be a very powerful experience. But I do find a lot of people hide behind the cloth. And I know it sounds like a horrible, I'm not generalizing there. People are amazing and they do a tremendous amount of healing by withdrawing from the world and praying for the world and sending energy for it. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a similar thing. The things that we go towards a lot of the times are things that are comfort zones and we need to step out of them. You know, for me, it's very comfortable where I come from to go and meditate or to hang out in the South Bronx or hang out. For me, it was really hard when my friends would take me to some really shishi store. It sounds funny. It was like really hard for me to walk in. I was a punk rocker. I was pissed at this. I was pissed at that. My, my friend would like grab me by the hand and say, like, come in and walk into Saks Fifth. I was just like, I didn't know what to do with it. Ser seriously. That's, that's all right. You said something before, and I said, what are you, remember that book, um, what's that book I read? Punk Rock Dharma, something, Punk Rock. Oh, I never read that, yeah, yeah. Punk Rock Star. I never read that. Band, and he was a punk rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said something to me. He said something before, I said, what, what are you, a punk, that punk, punk rock Dharma, something like that is called, I forget what it's called. It's he becomes enlightened in the bathroom. He in a bar. Well, it goes to the point of what she's saying is that, that it really oh, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not me. That's but that's, yeah. yeah, one bald guy, they're all the same. Um, it is really about being in community to find it, and we, and we hide. Yes. Yes. Well, and it is. We are having. All, we are altering our consciousness, right? I mean, right now, for all of us, we sort of know we're different. But if any of you had a friend, a lover, a son, an animal that came around you, you're totally different than when you were this morning. And that's what I was saying last night. The energy of the group is the energy of the group. You might feel like you haven't totally shifted. Believe me, stuff's moving. Either you're holding it like this, it's bubbling inside. And that's the intention. When you're with like-minded others, it shifts things. Please. coincidences yeah so just in going into it so I, I guess in some ways I tried to find like be rooted just to get my just to experience a little bit of that of what I wanted to you know experience mm -hmm. um, I actually uh, was with my mother as she passed on in her life um, you know sitting with her for hours and, and I can remember you know trying to rub the rigor mortis out mm -hmm. of her legs and mm -hmm. And then in sitting here today, I just thought, wow, 
It's so common that yeah. it's so common. You really see it with spirits when they're on their way out and they're actually here because the people around are so afraid that they can't let them go. And it's amazing when you actually have the person, the person can be very far away. That gives them permission. They go. I'll tell you a story about death. The first person that I was around that was dying was my uncle. And um, I was living here. He had a brain tumor and he had come from Iran and he had come to New York, and we were kind of taking care of him, my, my, my mother and me. And his son, which was my cousin, was a political prisoner in Iran. And this man had an operation. They botched it up, and he was in this coma. So this went on for a while. And I remember I was young. I was like 17 or 18. And my cousin, every day they were threatening to shoot him, which what these fuckers would do, these mullahs. They would take you, they put a gun to your head, blank. And we didn't know if he's going to die or not. I knew right then that the reason he's not leaving is because he's worried about his son. So he's staying in the body worried about his son. So there's all this stuff goes on. They sell everything. They bribe these bastards, and the son gets released. I get a call that the son gets released. And it was comatose. And, you know, the doctors, of course, being doctors, like, don't bother. Don't waste your time. He's not hearing anything. I went up to him, and I said, your son got, got out. Kayvon got, 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 got out. You, you can go now. And literally, it was like 30 seconds later, he went... That stuff's real, oh, the, the psyche on that level. But because we have such fear, it's not just for our own death. It's what you're describing is when people around us are dying. The biggest gift you can give someone who's dying is just to let them be and not to fix it. The medical expenditure in this country, something like crazy, like 40, 50% of it is in the last five, seven days of someone's life. That goes back to this abject fear that we have. One of the things that was really wild for me observing all these people dying was how the doctor saw it as a failure. So not only this poor person is dealing with leaving, traumatizing a culture that has never trained them how to leave, the doctors are pissed at them. They're like the egomaniacal idea, like I failed, so now you have to carry my shame because I can't do anything for you. It's so unbelievable, the unconsciousness. The biggest thing you can do for someone who's dying is just sit there, not fix it, not be, just sit. But it takes work. Practice it. Pra practice it, but practice it with feeling, not with head. It's not a rote thing. The emotions are the gateway to the soul. That's what I always tell you. The emotion, go with the emotion. You know, you can actually practice these things and it can fortify your ego because you actually get harder, not softer. If you're having an emotional movement, for a lot of us in this room, given our histories, it's really easy for us to intellectually understand this. If you're getting agitated, if you're getting sad, if you're crying, it's really difficult to have that. It's much easier for women, much harder for men, and also hard for women who've had hard lives early on. The, the really weeping thing is hard because to open that up, you have to feel so much at one time because you've taken decades to build that armor. So beautiful. And yeah, just sit with it. And it's, it's up anyway. It comes up if you make room for it. These things, you just invite them in. You know, the, the consciousness, it wants to give it to you. But we're pushing it in. We've got the foot on the door, and we're like, yeah, I really wanted to come in. Yeah. But that image you say is so powerful, you know, of rubbing the rigor mortis. That, that's our culture. Right? People are dead, and then they're bringing them back, and they're doing code, and they're doing it. It's like, man, just let the guy go. That's your stuff, not their stuff.
that part that part you see over and over and over. Anything else? Yeah. I find it interesting, like a lot of the work comes up when you're in relationships with people, I mean, the longer work times, whatever, so that's where the stuff comes up and you get to clean up. But somehow I find it difficult to do it in that same setting because mm -hmm. you have those responsibilities and people are expecting things, whatever, so mm -hmm. I kind of, you go through moments where you feel stuff, but you can't let yourself, you can't let, I feel you can't let the ego completely drop. Mm -hmm. And just be completely vulnerable because you still have to act, mm -hmm. you know, like performing mm -hmm. a society. So mm -hmm. how do you manage that? That's a beautiful question. It's really no pat answers. Remember that your idealized self, that mask, has pulled in and is in relationship with people who want that idealized self mask to be there. So when you start changing, it pisses people off. Mm -hmm. So it's even deeper than what you're saying. What you're saying is absolutely true. But deeper than that, People don't want you to change, even what the words are. It's very common with couples, gay or straight. I want you to work, I want you to work, I want you to work. The unconscious thing is, don't work, don't work, don't work, because if you work, you won't need me. I want you to do this, I want you to do this. But the unconscious is like, don't do that, don't do that, because if you do, you won't need me. Your father, your mother, you know, be strong for me, be this, the second you have vulnerability. So there's a couple of things. Spiritual work is like throwing a grenade into your life. You cannot keep it the same here and do the work. This is why we don't do the work. So depends where, how, and how strong you are and what's going on in you. But you take, you take it one step at a time. You take it one relationship at a time. Sometimes it reaches a point where you just blow up, right? I had a nervous breakdown when my wife left me, whatever, 10, 12 years ago. When I was in that position, I didn't have an option of being, I tried to pull myself together. I couldn't. I'm a strong guy for me to have that. So at that point, it was an option. That might be one way that life will bring it to you. But what I'm hearing in your question is the fear of what's going to happen if you don't keep it together. And what I was saying earlier is not only are you doing a disservice by keeping it together because you're feeding everyone's addictions, you're doing a real disservice to yourself. So at some point, especially the way the energy is now, that's going to get pulled, ripped wide open. So one of the things I would say to you is start by just taking care of yourself. It's never about the other person anyway. If you start really shifting, the other person will have to shift. And it's usually one of one thing. They'll shift and go with you. They'll try to kill you at first. Then they'll get it. Or they'll just fall apart. They won't be there. But the other thing that I was saying to you earlier is when you are vulnerable, those people will then have to feed themselves. It's not your job to be the perfect mannequin so they can hang their elbows on you. When you move that, they're going to fall and figure it out. So part of that work is internal work. But it has to have a corresponding action externally for it to work. So me and you are in a relationship. And I'm like, I need you to be like this. I need you to be like this. And you're like, well, I don't really want to upset Abdi. But I'm just going to get more and more furious at you because I'm feeling that you're not really wanting to do what I want you to do. But as a control freak, what's the gift that you can give me? By doing what I want you to do? No, because I'm becoming more of a drug addict. By saying, hey, man, just chill out. Like, it's not really cool that you do this. It's not cool that you're telling me this. It's not cool you're demanding this. I cannot meet that. You don't take my inventory, you talk about yourself. That's the best way to neutralize it. If I go to my partner, I'm like, damn it, woman, blah, 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 blah. That's just, everything escalates. So I'm like, I'm really at a place right now. I had a rough week at work. I cannot go here right now. I don't have the capacity. Maybe I will in a couple of days. Maybe I won't. Different. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Go, go. What, what? You can't be nice. You got to be real. It's, 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 it's,
Yes. But but here's the thing: the upsetting you're doing a service to them. If you're doing it to hurt someone, that's not what I'm talking about. If you are not capable to continue that relationship because it's, it's damaging you, you're actually doing a service. Now I know you, you're someone who actually wants to do service to the world. That was actually your physical work, going around the world helping people. That's what you're trying to do spiritually and that's what you're doing as a mother-to-be. Remember, as you become a mother, you're going to have less energy to give out to those things. Your responsibility is to you and to that child, <clears throat> really. I mean, energetically and otherwise. So, is the part of us is afraid of being not liked, idealized self-image, right? The whole thing is we whore ourselves to be loved. And the other thing is just speaking your truth. So, be real. It's not about being nice. It's not about being mean. It's about being real. We don't really know what that means. We know what being nice is. And you've obviously perfected being nice because that's your defense mechanism, right? So, people usually, we fall in one of two categories. You're in a prison camp. Either you become a perpetrator and you kick everyone's ass to get your things or you become a total I'm, just don't mess with me I'll be really good I'll be invisible just don't mess with me it's usually one of those things so it's hard you have no option but to do what you need to do you know what you need to do it's just you're worried about the consequences so start with the easy stuff but usually it's so connected that you got to do one the whole thing connects does that answer your question anybody questions off that question so much hiding it's, keeps it's all hiding. Well, and you can sit in silence in the next ten I'm years. No, no, but it's not. But, but <laughs> no, but but no, but that's very important because part of spiritual path is people sit in silence, and much can happen in silence. But my point is, and we'll get into it after lunch. Spirituality, psychology, right. sitting in silence alone, you can come back into the marketplace. It's that story, that Sufi teaching story. The guy's all enlightened and he comes back in the marketplace. A donkey hits him and he goes crazy. So sitting in silence is important. We've always confused spirituality with psychology. The psychology, psychological work is what helps the not hiding. Then the spiritual work will help you actually get in touch with the whole. But this is the whole point, And we use anything to hide, including spiritual work. So... This Zen master that I was telling you about earlier that just got busted on all these things this, with the sexual stuff. He's not stupid. This guy's energy is so strong. You walk into a room, you feel his energy. The guy's been in a room five days ago, you feel his energy. Real deal. But he hasn't done the psychological work, so the sexual stuff kicks in. The thing that I'm talking about is Zen masters in Japan during World War II. These were the biggest proponent of Japanese going and kicking ass. A Zen master. What is Buddha's do not hurt people? Hello? Like one of the tenants? How does that work? Psychology, spirituality. Silence is important. Silence devoid of this stuff doesn't work. So remember these Eastern cultures, the way they worked with it is they just shut that stuff down. There was no question of your, you honored your parents, you honored your parents, you honored your parents. We're not those people. We try to be those people. It doesn't work. So you're not joking. What you're saying is true, but both together, wow. And that's a gift of us as Westerners. We have these psychological aspects that we can actually work with, and we have these gifts that have been handed to us by these powerful cultures. Now, one of the best ways to deal with this is shove your feelings down by eating, which is what we're going to do right now. 